The Homeland Security Department's headquarters project might be one of the longest-running construction programs in government history. Planning started more than 17 years ago, and the latest estimates peg the completion date now at 2027, another five years. Now the Government Accountability Office says the latest cost and schedule estimates lack detail enough to know whether they're reliable. We get more now from the GAO's Director for Homeland Security and Justice Issues, Chris Curry. Chris, could have you back. Thanks, Tom. And the latest cost estimate from DHS, I guess, and also the General Services Administration, that latest report is required by law, correct? Exactly, right. The law was passed way back in 2015 for them to update the cost and schedule estimates that we had recommended. It's very late and just was issued recently. So this is why we took a look at it. Wow. And the report itself had some shortcomings, and we'll get to the larger project, but the report itself you weren't all that pleased with. Right. Well, the problem in this project is over the years, there's been a number of resets which have kind of required them to redo the cost and schedule estimates at several times, and then construction progress would overtake those cost and schedule estimates. And so then they'd do an update and everything would reset and change. So this has been a recurring event over time. So this most recent update by DHS did not provide new cost and schedule estimates, mainly because GSA was still working on some of those things and they were resetting again the construction plans at the campus itself. So as you said, I mean, the, the new estimate for completion is 2027. They started planning this in 2005. So we're over 20 years and $2.8 billion since the original plans for this project were started. And for listeners who might have been in high school when this started, this is the St. Elizabeth's Hospital campus in southeast Washington, D.C. And there has been some progress. I mean, the Coast Guard has a spiffy building there. There's a whole there is a campus and DHS itself has a smallish headquarters for some components. So it's not as if nothing's happened for that two point eight billion. Right. But, you know, the project has been incredibly complicated, as you know, and it was picked at the time because it was available and there was the amount of space that DHS initially thought it needed to consolidate its headquarters components. But essentially what's happened is it's been a combination of having to build new buildings on a very difficult historic site with a lot of rules and regulations behind how they could build. For example, the Coast Guard headquarters could only have been built at a certain height because views to the district in D.C. couldn't be blocked. The same was true with some of the buildings, the historic buildings, which could not be torn down. So essentially they had to gut these things, you know, kind of like this old house, down to the bare bones and completely redo them. So they cost way more than they thought and took way longer to build. And that's what's caused a number of the delays. And at the moment, I guess the main construction project is the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency? Right. There's a couple big projects that are in planning and construction are are almost to construction right now. One is the Cybersecurity Agency building, which is going to be completely new construction like the Coast Guard building. But Again, it's being built on a difficult sloping site that requires a lot of work, a lot of cost to get the site ready, and then actual construction, and also having to work around restoration of certain facilities. For example, there's a power generation facility there that cannot be destroyed because of historic purposes that they have to use and renovate in accordance with you know with the needs of these brand new facilities. Too. So you think about it, it's like the combination of These very modern, highly secure office buildings and then, you know, these brick structures that are over 100 years old. 
Yeah, I guess it seemed like a good idea at the time. We're speaking with Chris Curry, Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the GAO. And has part of the problem also been stop-and-go funding from Congress? Because if you can't plan beyond the funding you have, and if the funding doesn't come through and then a program gets delayed, costs never seem to go down in that situation. Yeah, the funding situation on this project has been very interesting uh, for a couple reasons. I mean, one is you have two agencies. So the funding goes through both GSA and DHS in different pots. And so it requires the coordination of that funding, but it also requires both agencies to get the right funding they need to do the project. However, what's happened over the years is because there have been problems with the cost and schedule estimation and a lot of questions in Congress, at different times, funding has not either not been provided or has been restricted. For example, in several years, uh, GSA was provided none of its requested funding and DHS was provided its funding. So they've had to cobble together what funding they have to build out the project. And I think because of that, there's been a lot of changes and delays over time. For example, there was a point in time when I think they were going to hopefully do some of this construction concurrently and build all these buildings at the same time. But because of the funding problems, they were only able to focus on one building at a time and then move to the next building. And then, of course, by doing that, years pass, needs change, plans change. Uh, other DHS components may have signed leases throughout the National Capital Region and don't need to come there anymore. And so the plans reset. So it's kind of like a chicken and the egg thing. It just keeps changing over time. And then that affects the funding and the timeframes. All right. Getting back to your most recent report, then, that you felt that it could not really be verified what was in there because it had not been updated fully and there were missing facts. Any recommendations and where does it all go from here? As you said, there is one building under construction, that good looking place, too. It's a real piece of architecture. But uh, what else? Well, in government, the way this is supposed to work and the way we want it to work is that you develop a cost and a schedule estimate as accurately as possible, and then you stick to that. Now, it's not uncommon that that would change or you go above cost, but you stick to the plan. I think the challenge here is the plans have changed so many times that they're just not updating the cost and schedule estimate. So right now, the big projects coming up in the next few years are the, as you said, the building of the cybersecurity agency. And then there's another new building on the campus that's going to house parts of immigration, customs enforcement, and then customs and border protection as well. So these two big buildings, all the site work and the construction work, need to be incorporated into the overall cost and schedule estimate to build out the rest of the campus. Even though they say they hope to do that by 2027, that's not really all down on paper. So you know, I'm not very optimistic that they're going to be able to stick to that without seeing the details of the plan. The other thing, Tom, I wanted to mention it's critical. And, you know, we just had two and a half years of a pandemic. You know, the whole landscape of the workforce at DHS in the National Capital Region is changed, too. I mean, they have 34,000 people in the National Capital Region. So 148 lease locations, 118 federal locations just in the NCR. And so St. Elizabeth is now just a component of their overall space plan in the region. And that's changed in the last couple of years. So that's just part of the picture they have to come up with with their overall workforce plan. And do you get the sense or have they had the experience that contractors may not want to necessarily bid on these projects with so much uncertainty? Right. It's very difficult to think about it. Even if there's a plan, given the past history of plan changes and additions and funding uncertainties, I think it's a very risky thing to bid on if you're a contractor. And that certainly factors in. Also, I mean, 
you know, like any contractor, they're looking at what's actually being done and uncertainties. And so, you know, particularly the part of this that's the restoration of the old buildings is, you know, there's going to be costs that are unexpected and unplanned for too. So it's, yeah, probably not the most enticing contract to bid on if you're a construction company. And one of the attractions of Southeast was that perhaps it could draw some urban renewal surrounding DHS because of how many people would be working there and traveling there every day. Has any of that materialized? You know, we haven't really done any analysis of the surrounding area, but I can just tell you, having been there several times and looking at the development, I think the the way the campus is developed, it's really kind of an insulated campus. For example, to get to the core of it, you know, it requires going through, uh, you know, one or several security gates, getting to a parking deck, then transferring to another location. So while I think the original design of the core of the campus was to be walkable, and I think you know, between some of the buildings there right now, it is, you know, the surrounding space is very large. So the idea that people were just going to come and go out of the campus, it's not easy to get in and out of the campus. So uh, I'm not sure that's really played out the way everyone expected it to. Yeah, this is definitely not Washington's version of Rockefeller Center, is it? No, it's it's not. I'm, well, and part of this is security and buffer sure. zones. I mean, uh, there's some security benefits to St. Elizabeth, too, because it's not easy to get in and out of the campus. So that was also part of the justification of having DHS be there. All right. So any recommendations at this point? Well, our recommendations from our 2014 report on, you know, the updated cost and schedule estimates still stand and they're still open. And because that we don't think those have been implemented yet, we still think they need to do that, even though they are hopefully kind of toward the tail end of completing this project. You know, my concern is even though that on paper, they're just say they're going to complete a few more buildings and then be done. Given the track record, that could take a lot longer than they're saying. And also, I think it's important that they've just put down on paper what their plans are for this campus versus the rest of the locations and, and, and the workforce around the rest of the capital region. And just hopefully um, figure that out and complete this project and put this to bed finally. Chris Curry is Director of Homeland Security and Justice Issues at the Government Accountability Office. Thanks so much. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to his report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the section chief of office and policy for the FBI's deputy director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. 
And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I didn't. I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know. In retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving, all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of, involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI, who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of 
coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so, well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But 
I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So, so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay, and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.